Fourth Division, Concerning the Soul of Artists and Authors, Part 1 of Human All Too Human, a book for free spirits by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Helen Zimmern, 1846-1934. through 1934. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivenna. Fourth Division, Concerning the Soul of Artists and Authors, Part 1. 145. The Perfect Should Not Have Grown. With regard to everything that is perfect, we are accustomed to omit the question as to how perfection has been acquired, and how we only rejoice in the present as if it had sprung out of the ground by magic. Probably with regard to this matter, we are still under the effects of an ancient mythological feeling. It still almost seems to us, in such a Greek temple, for instance, as that of Pastum, as if one morning a god in sport had built his dwelling of such enormous masses, at other times it seems as if his spirit had suddenly entered into a stone and now desired to speak through it the artist knows that his work is only fully effective if it arouses the belief in an improvisation in a marvellous instantaneousness of origin and thus he assists this illusion and introduces into art those elements of inspired unrest of bloody groping disorder of listening dreaming at the beginning of creation as a means of deception in order so to influence the soul of the spectator or hearer that it may believe in the sudden appearance of the perfect it is the business of the science of art to contradict this illusion most decidedly and show up the mistakes and pampering of the intellect by means of which it falls into the artist's trap one forty six the artist's sense of truth with regard to recognition of truths the artist has a weaker morality than the thinker he will on no account let himself be deprived of brilliant and profound interpretations of life, and defends himself against temperate and simple methods and results. He is apparently fighting for the higher worthiness and meaning of mankind. In reality, he will not renounce the most effective suppositions for his art, the fantastical, mythical, uncertain, extreme, the sense of the symbolical, the overvaluation of personality, the belief that genius is something miraculous. He considers, therefore, the continuance of his art of creation as more important than the scientific devotion to truth in every shape, however simple this may appear. 147. Art as Razor of the Dead Art also fulfills the task of preservation and even of brightening up extinguished and faded memories. When it accomplishes this task, it weaves a rope round the ages and causes their spirits to return. It is, certainly, only a phantom life that results therefrom, as out of graves, or like the return in dreams of our beloved dead. But for some moments, at least, the old sensation lives again, and the heart beats to an almost forgotten time. Hence, for the sake of the general usefulness of art, the artist himself must be excused if he does not stand in the front rank of the enlightenment and progressive civilization of humanity. All his life long he has remained a child or a youth, and has stood still at the point where he was overcome by his artistic impulse. The feelings of the first years of life, however, are acknowledged to be nearer to those of earlier times than to those of the present century. Unconsciously, it becomes his mission to make mankind more childlike. This is his glory and his limitation. 148. Poets as the Lighteners of Life Poets, inasmuch as they desire to lighten the life of man, either divert his gaze from the wearisome present, or assist the present to acquire new colors by means of a life which they cause to shine out of the past. To be able to do this, they must in many respects themselves be beings who are turned towards the past, so that they can be used as bridges to far distant times and ideas, to dying or dead religions and cultures. Actually, they are always and of necessity epigoni, 
There are, however, certain drawbacks to their means of lightening life. They appease and heal only temporarily, only for the moment. They even prevent men from laboring towards a genuine improvement in their conditions, inasmuch as they remove and apply palliatives to precisely that passion of discontent that induces to action. 149. The Slow Arrow of Beauty The noblest kind of beauty is that which does not transport us suddenly, which does not make stormy and intoxicating impressions. Such a kind easily arouses disgust. But that which slowly filter into our minds, which we take away with us almost unnoticed, and which we encounter again in our dreams, but which, however, after having long lain modestly on our hearts, takes entire possession of us, fills our eyes with tears, and our hearts with longing. What is it that we long for at the sight of beauty? We long to be beautiful. We fancy it must bring much happiness with it. But that is a mistake. 150. The Animation of Art Art raises its head where creeds relax. It takes over many feelings and moods engendered by religion, lays them to its heart, and itself becomes deeper, more full of soul, so that it is capable of transmitting exultation and enthusiasm, which it previously was not able to do. The abundance of religious feelings which have grown into a stream are always breaking forth again, and desire to conquer new kingdoms, but the growing enlightenment has shaken the dogmas of religion and inspired a deep mistrust. Thus, the feeling, thrust by enlightenment, out of the religious sphere, throws itself upon art, in a few cases into political life, even straight into science. Everywhere where human endeavor wears a loftier, gloomier aspect, it may be assumed that the fear of spirits, incense, and church shadows have remained attached to it. 151. How Rhythm Beautifies Rhythm casts a veil over reality. It causes various artificialities of speech and obscurities of thought. By the shadow it throws open upon it sometimes conceals it, and sometimes brings it into prominence. As shadow is necessary to beauty, so the dull is necessary to lucidity. Art makes the aspect of life endurable by throwing over it the veil of obscure thought. 152. The Art of the Ugly Soul Art is confined within two narrow limits if it be required that only the orderly, respectable, well-behaved soul should be allowed to express itself therein. As in the plastic arts, so also in music and poetry. There is an art of the ugly soul side by side with the art of the beautiful soul. And the mightiest effects of art, the crushing of souls, moving of stones, and humanizing of beasts, have perhaps been best achieved precisely by that art. 153. Art makes heavy the heart of the thinker. How strong metaphysical need is and how difficult nature renders our departure from it may be seen from the fact that even in the free spirit, when he has cast off everything metaphysical, the loftiest effects of art can easily produce a resounding of the long, silent, even broken, metaphysical string. It may be, for instance, that at a passage of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony he feels himself floating above the earth in a starry dome with a dream of immortality in his heart. All the stars seem to shine round him, and the earth to sink farther and farther away. If he becomes conscious of this state, he feels a deep pain at his heart, and sighs for the man who will lead back to him his lost darling, be it called religion or metaphysics. In such moments, his intellectual character is put to the test. 
154. Playing with Life The lightness and frivolity of the Homeric imagination was necessary to calm and occasionally to raise the immoderately passionate temperament and acute intellect of the Greeks. If their intellect speaks, how harsh and cruel does life then appear? They do not deceive themselves, but they intentionally weave lies round life. Simonides advised his countrymen to look upon life as a game. Earnestness was too well known to them as pain. The gods so gladly hear the misery of mankind made the theme of song. And they knew that through art alone misery might be turned into pleasure. As a punishment for this insight, however, they were so plagued with the love of romancing that it was difficult for them in everyday life to keep themselves free from falsehood and deceit. For all poetic nations have such a love of falsehood, and yet are innocent withal. Probably this occasionally drove the neighboring nations to desperation. 155. The Belief in Inspiration It is to the interest of the artist that there should be a belief in sudden suggestions, so-called inspirations, as if the idea of a work of art, of poetry, the fundamental thought of a philosophy shone down from heaven like a ray of grace. In reality, the imagination of the good artist or thinker constantly produces good, mediocre, and bad, but his judgment, most clear and practiced, rejects and chooses and joins together, just as we now learn from Beethoven's notebooks that he gradually composed the most beautiful melodies, and in a manner selected them from many different attempts. He who makes less severe distinctions, and willingly abandons himself to imitative memories, may under certain circumstances become a great improvisateur but artistic improvisation ranks low in comparison with serious and laboriously chosen artistic thoughts. All great men were great workers, unwearied not only in invention but also in rejection, reviewing, transforming, and arranging. 156. Inspiration Again If the productive power has been suspended for a length of time and has been hindered in its outflow by some obstacle, there comes at last a sudden outpouring, as if an immediate inspiration were taking place without previous inward working, consequently a miracle. This constitutes the familiar deception in the continuance of which, as we have said, the interest of all artists is rather too much concerned. The capital is only accumulated, it has not suddenly fallen down from heaven. Moreover, such apparent inspirations are seen elsewhere, for instance, in the realm of goodness, of virtue, of vice. 157. The Suffering of Genius and Its Value The artistic genius desires to give pleasure, but if his mind is on a very high plane he does not easily find anyone to share his pleasure. He offers entertainment, but nobody accepts it. This gives him, in certain circumstances, a comically touching pathos, for he has really no right to force pleasure on men. He pipes, but none will dance. Can that be tragic? Perhaps. As compensation for this deprivation, however, he finds more pleasure in creating than the rest of mankind experiences in all other species of activity. His sufferings are considered as exaggerated because the sound of his complaints is louder and his tongue is more eloquent, and yet sometimes his sufferings are really very great, but only because his ambition and his envy are so great. The learned genius, like Kepler and Spinoza, is usually not so covetous and does not make such an exhibition of his really greater sufferings and deprivations. He can reckon with greater certainty on future fame and can afford to do without the present, 
whilst an artist who does this always plays a desperate game that makes his heart ache. In very rare cases, when in one and the same individual are combined with genius of power and of knowledge and the moral genius, there is added to the above-mentioned pains that species of pain which must be regarded as the most curious exception in the world, those extra and super-personal sensations which are experienced on behalf of a nation, of humanity, of all civilization, all suffering existence, which acquire their value through the connection with particularly difficult and remote perceptions. Pity in itself is worth but little. But what standard, what proof is there for its geniusness? Is it not almost imperative to be mistrustful of all who talk of feeling sensations of this kind? 158. The Destiny of Greatness Every great phenomenon is followed by degeneration, especially in the world of art. The example of the great tempts vainer natures to superficial imitation or exaggeration. All great gifts have the fatality of crushing many weaker forces and germs, and of laying waste all nature around them. The happiest arrangement in the development of an art is for several geniuses mutually to hold one another within bounds. In this strife, it generally happens that light and air are also granted to the weaker and more delicate natures. 159. Art Dangerous for the Artist when art takes strong hold of an individual, it draws him back to the contemplation of those times when art flourished best, and it has then a retrograde effect. The artist grows more and more to reverence sudden inspirations. He believes in gods and daemons. He spiritualizes all nature, hates science, is changeable in his moods like the ancients, and longs for an overthrow of existing conditions which are not favorable to art, and does this with the impetuosity and unreasonableness of a child. Now, in himself, the artist is already a backward nature, because he halts at a game that belongs properly to youth and childhood. To this is added the fact that he is educated back into former times. Thus, there gradually arises a fierce antagonism between him and his contemporaries, and a sad ending. According to the counts of the ancients, Homer and Ashilu spent their last years and died in melancholy. 160. Created Individuals when it is said that the dramatist, and the artist above all, creates real characters, it is a fine deception and exaggeration, in the existence and propagation of which art celebrates one of its unconscious but at the same time abundant triumphs. As a matter of fact, we do not understand much about a real, living man, and we generalize very superficially when we ascribe to him this and that character. This very imperfect attitude of ours toward man is represented by the poet, inasmuch as he makes into men in this sense creates, outlines as superficial as our knowledge of man is superficial. There is a great deal of delusion about these created characters of artists. They are by no means living productions of nature, but are like painted men, somewhat too thin, they will not bear a close inspection. And when it is said that the character of the ordinary living being contradicts itself frequently, and that one created by the dramatist is the original model conceived by nature, this is quite wrong. A genuine man is something absolutely necessary, even in those so-called contradictions. But we do not always recognize this necessity. The imaginary man, the phantasm, signifies something necessary, but only to those who understand a real man only in a crude, unnatural simplification, so that a few strong, oft-repeated traits, with a great deal of light and shade and half-life about them, amplify, satisfy their notions. They are, therefore, ready to treat the phantasm as a genuine, necessary man, 
because with real men they are accustomed to regard a phantasm, an outline, an intentional abbreviation as the whole. That the painter and sculptor express the idea of man is a vain imagination and delusion. Whoever says this is in subjection to the eye, for this only sees the surface, the epidermis of the human body. The inward body, however, is equally a part of the idea. Plastic art wishes to make character visible on the surface. Hysteronic art employs speech for the same purpose. It reflects character and sounds. Art stands from the natural ignorance of man about his interior condition, embodying character. It is not meant for philosophers or natural scientists. 161. The Overvaluation of Self in the Belief in Artists and Philosophers we are all prone to think that the excellence of a work of art or of an artist is proved when it moves and touches us. But there, our own excellence in judgment and sensibility must have been proved first, which is not the case. In all plastic art, who had greater power to effect a charm than Bernini? Who made a greater effect than the order that appeared after Demosthenes introduced the Asiatic style and gave it predominance which lasted throughout two centuries? This predominance during whole centuries is not a proof of the excellence and enduring validity of a style. Therefore, we must not be too certain in our good opinion of any artist. This is not only belief in the truthfulness of our sensations, but also in the infallibility of our judgment. Whereas judgment or sensation, or even both, may be too coarse or too fine, exaggerated or crude. Neither are the blessings and blissfulness of a philosophy or of a religion proof of its truth. Just as little as the happiness which an insane person derives from his fixed idea is a proof of the reasonableness of this idea. 162. The Cult of Genius for the Sake of Vanity Because we think well of ourselves, but nevertheless do not imagine that we are capable of the conception of one of Raphael's pictures, or of a scene such as those of one of Shakespeare's dramas, we persuade ourselves that the faculty for doing this is quite extraordinarily wonderful, a very rare case, or, if we are religiously inclined, a grace from above. Thus the cult of genius fosters our vanity, our self-love, for it is only when we think of it as very far removed from us, as a miraculum, that it does not wound us, even Goethe, who is free from envy, called Shakespeare a star of the furthest heavens, whereby we are reminded of the line, Die Sterne, die Begert, man nicht. Footnote. The allusion is to Goethe's lines, Die Sterne, die Begert, man nicht. Man fut, sich eher pracht. We do not want the stars themselves. Their brilliancy delights our hearts. J.M.K. End footnote. But apart from those suggestions of our vanity, the activity of genius does not seem so radically different from the activity of a mechanical inventor, of an astronomer or historian or strategist. All these forms of activity are explicable if we realize men whose minds are active in one special direction, who make use of everything as material, who always eagerly study their own inward life and that of others, who find types and incitements everywhere, who never weary on the employment of their means. Genius does nothing but learn how to lay stones, then to build, always to seek for material and always to work upon it. Every human activity is marvelously complicated and not only that of genius, but it is no miracle. Now whence comes the belief that genius is found only in artists, orators, and philosophers, that they alone have intuition, by which we credit them with a kind of magic glass by means of which they see straight into one's being. 
It is clear that men only speak of genius where the workings of a great intellect are most agreeable to them, and have no desire to feel envious. To call anyone divine is as much as saying, Here we have no occasion for rivalry. Thus it is that everything completed and perfect is stared at, and everything incomplete is undervalued. Now nobody can see how the work of an artist has developed. That is its advantage. For everything of which the development is seen is looked on coldly, the perfected art of representation precludes all thought of its development. It tyrannizes as perfect perfection. For this reason, artists of representation are especially held to be possessors of genius, but not scientific men. In reality, however, the former valuation and the latter undervaluation are only puerilities of reason. 163. The Earnestness of Handicraft Do not talk of gifts, of inborn talents. We could mention great men of all kinds who were but little gifted, but they obtained greatness, became geniuses, as they are called, through qualities of the lack of which nobody who is conscious of them likes to speak. They all had that thorough earnestness for work which learns first how to form the different parts perfectly before it ventures to make a great whole. They gave themselves time for this, because they took more pleasure in doing small, accessory things well than in the effect of a dazzling whole. For instance, the recipe for becoming a good novelist is easily given, but the carrying out of the recipe presupposes qualities which we are in the habit of overlooking when we say, I have not sufficient talent. Make a hundred or more sketches of novel plots, none more than two pages long, but of such clearness that every word in them is necessary. Write down anecdotes every day until you learn to find the most pregnant, most effective form. Never weary of collecting and delineating human types and characters. Above all, narrate things as often as possible, and listen to narrations with a sharp eye and ear for the effect upon other people present. Travel like a landscape painter and a designer of costumes. Take from different sciences everything that is artistically effective, if it be well represented. Finally, meditate on the motives for human actions, score not even the smallest point of instruction on the subject, and collect similar matters by day and night. Spend some ten years in these various exercises, then the creations of your study may be allowed to see the light of day. But what do most people do, on the contrary? They do not begin with the part, but with the whole. Perhaps they make one good stroke, excite attention, and even afterwards their work grows worse and worse, for good, natural reasons. But sometimes, when intellect and character are lacking for the formation of such an artistic career, fate and necessity take the place of these qualities and lead the future master step by step through all the phases of his craft. 164. The Danger and the Gain in the Cult of Genius the belief in great, superior, fertile minds is not necessarily, but still very frequently, connected with that wholly or partially religious superstition that those spirits are of superhuman origin and possess certain marvelous faculties, by means of which they obtain their knowledge in ways quite different from the rest of mankind. They are credited with having an immediate insight into the nature of the world, through a peephole in the mantle of the phenomenon, as it were, and it is believed that, without the trouble and severity of science, by virtue of this marvelous prophetic sight, they could impart something final and decisive about mankind and the world. 
So long as there are still believers in miracles in the world of knowledge, it may perhaps be admitted that the believers themselves derive a benefit therefrom, inasmuch as by their absolute subjection to great minds they obtain the best discipline and schooling for their own minds during the period of development. On the other hand, it may at least be questioned whether the superstition of genius, of its privileges and special faculties, is useful for a genius himself when it implants itself in him. In any case, it is a dangerous sign when man shudders at his own self, be it that famous Caesarean shudder or the shudder of genius which applies to this case, when the incense of sacrifice, which by rights is offered to a god alone, penetrates into the brain of the genius, so that he begins to waver and to look upon himself as something superhuman. The slow consequences are the feeling of irresponsibility, the exceptional rights, the belief that mere intercourse with him confers a favor, and frantic rage at any attempt to compare him with others or even to place him below them and to bring into prominence whatever is unsuccessful in his work. Through the fact that he ceases to criticize himself, one pinion after another falls out of his plumage, that superstition undermines the foundation of his strength and even makes him a hypocrite after his powers failed him. For great minds it is, therefore, perhaps better when they come to an understanding about their strength and its source, when they comprehend what purely human qualities are mingled in them, what a combination they are of fortunate conditions. Thus, once it was continual energy, a decided application to individual aims, great personal courage, and then the good of fortune of an education, which at an early period provided the best teachers, examples, and methods. Assuredly, if its aim is to make the greatest possible effect, abstrusiveness has always done much for itself and that gift of partial insanity, for at all times that power has been admired and envied by means of which men were deprived of will and imbued with the fancy that they were preceded by supernatural leaders. Truly, men are exalted and inspired by the belief that someone among them is endowed with supernatural powers, and in this respect insanity, as Pluto says, has brought the greatest blessings to mankind. In a few rare cases, this form of insanity may also have been the means by which an all-around exuberant nature was kept within bounds. In individual life, the imaginings of frenzy frequently exert the virtue of remedies which are poisons in themselves, but in every genius that believes in his own divinity, the poison shows itself at last in the same proportion as the genius grows old. We need but recollect the example of Napoleon, for it was almost assuredly through his faith in himself and his star, and through his scorn of mankind, that he grew to that mighty unity that distinguished him from all modern men, until at last, however, this faith developed into an almost insane fatalism, robbed him of his quickness of comprehension and penetration, and was the cause of his downfall. 165. Genius and Nullity it is precisely the original artists, those who create out of their own heads, who in certain circumstances can bring forth complete emptiness and husk, whilst the more dependent natures, the so-called talented ones, are full of memories of all manner of goodness, and even in a state of weakness produce something tolerable. But if the original ones are abandoned by themselves, memory renders them no assistance, they become empty. 166 the public. The people really demand nothing more from tragedy than to be deeply affected, in order to have a good cry occasionally. 
The artist, on the contrary, who sees the new tragedy, takes pleasure in the clever technical inventions and tricks, in the management and distribution of the material, in the novel arrangement of old motives and old ideas. His attitude is the aesthetic attitude toward a work of art, that of the creator. The one first described, with regard solely to the material, is that of the people. Of the individual who stands between the two, nothings need be said. He is neither people nor artist, and does not know what he wants. Therefore, his pleasure is also clouded and insignificant. 167. The Artistic Education of the Public If the same motif is not employed in a hundred ways by different masters, the public never learns to get beyond their interest in the subject. But at last, when it is well acquainted with the motif through countless different treatments and no longer finds in it any charm of novelty or excitement, it will then begin to grasp and enjoy the various shades and delicate new inventions in its treatment. 168. The artist and his followers must keep in step. The progress from one grade of style to another must be slow, that not only the artist but also the auditors and spectators can follow it and know exactly what is going on. Otherwise, there will suddenly appear that great chasm between the artist, who creates his work upon a height apart, and the public, who cannot rise up to that height and finally sinks discontentedly deeper. For when the artist no longer raises his public, it rapidly sinks downward, and its fall is the deeper and more dangerous in proportion to the height to which genius has carried it, like the eagle, out of whose talons a tortoise that has been borne up into the cloud falls to its destruction. 169. The Source of the Comic Element if we consider that for many thousands of years man was an animal that was susceptible in the highest degree to fear, and that everything sudden and unexpected had to find him ready for battle, perhaps even ready for death, that even later, in social relations, all security was based on the expected, on custom and thought and action, we need not be surprised that at everything sudden and unexpected in word and deed, if it occurs without danger or injury, man becomes exuberant and passes over into the very opposite of fear. That terrified, trembling, crouching being shoots upward, stretches itself. Man laughs. This transition from momentary fear into short-lived exhilaration is called the comic. On the other hand, in the tragic phenomenon, man passes quickly from great enduring exuberance into great fear. But as amongst mortals, great and lasting exuberance is much rarer than the cause for fear. There is far more comedy than tragedy in the world. We laugh much oftener than we are agitated. 170. The Artist's Ambition The Greek artists, the tragedarians, for instance, composed in order to conquer. Their whole art cannot be imagined without rivalry. The good Hesedonian, Eris, ambition, gave wings to their genius. This ambition further demands that their work should achieve the greatest excellence in their own eyes as they understood excellence, without any regard for the reigning taste and the general opinion about excellence in a work of art. And thus it was long before Aeschylus and Euripides achieved any success, until at last they educated judges of art, who valued their work according to the standards which they themselves appointed. Hence, they strove for victory over rivals according to their own valuation. They really wished to be more excellent. They demanded assent from without to this self-valuation the confirmation of this verdict. 
To achieve honor means, in this case, to make oneself superior to others, and to desire that this should be recognized publicly. Should the former condition be wanting, and the latter nevertheless desired, it is then called vanity. Should the latter be lacking and not missed, then it is named pride. 171. What is needful to a work of art? Those who talk so much about the needful factors of a work of art exaggerate. If they are artists, they do so in majorum artis gloriam. If they are laymen, from ignorance. The form of a work of art, which gives speech to their thoughts and is, therefore, their mode of talking, is always somewhat uncertain, like all kinds of speech. The sculptor can add or omit many little traits, as can also the exponent, be he an actor or, in music, a performer or conductor. These many little traits and finishing touches afford him pleasure one day and none the next. They exist more for the sake of the artist than the art, for he also has occasionally need of sweetmeats and playthings to prevent him from becoming morose with the severity and self-restraint which the representation of the dominant idea demands from him. 172. To cause the master to be forgotten. The pianoforte player who executes the work of a master will have played best if he has made his audience forget the master, and if it seemed as if he were relating a story from his own life or just passing through some experience. Assuredly, if he is of no importance, everyone will abhor the garrulity with which he talks about his own life. Therefore, he must know how to influence his hearer's imagination favorably toward himself. Hereby are explained all the weaknesses and follies of the virtuoso. 173. Corriguer la Fortune There are unfortunate accidents in the lives of great artists, which compel the painter, for instance, to sketch out his most important picture only as a passing thought, or such as oblige Beethoven to leave behind him the only insufficient pianoforte score of many great sonatas, as in the great B-flat. In these cases, the artist of a later day must endeavor to fill out the life of the great man. Of all orchestral effects, would call into life that symphony which has fallen into the piano trance. 174. Reducing. Many things, events, or persons, cannot bear treatment on a small scale. The Laocoon group cannot be reduced to a knick-knack. Great size is necessary to it. But more seldom still does anything that is naturally small bear enlargement for which reason biographers succeed far oftener in representing a great man as small than a small one as great. 175. Sensuousness in present-day art. Artists nowadays frequently miscalculate when they count on the sensuous effect of their works, for their spectators or hearers have no longer a fully sensuous nature, and, quite contrary to the artist's intention, his work produces in them a holiness of feeling which is closely related to boredom. Their sensuousness begins, perhaps, just where that of the artist ceases. They meet, therefore, only at one point at the most. 176. Shakespeare as a Moralist Shakespeare meditated much on the passions, and on account of his temperament had probably a close acquaintance with many of them. Dramatists are in general rather wicked men. He could, however, not talk on the subject, like Montaigne, but put his observations thereon into the mouths of impassioned figures, which is contrary to nature, 
certainly but makes his dramas so rich in thought that they cause all others to seem poor in comparison and readily arouse a general aversion to them schiller's reflections which are almost always based on erroneous or trivial fancies are just theatrical reflections and as such are very effective whereas shakespeare's reflections do honor to his model montaigne and contain quite serious thoughts in polished form but on that account are too remote and refined for the eyes of the theatrical public and are consequently ineffective. 177. Securing a good hearing. It is not sufficient to know how to play well. One must also know how to secure a good hearing. A violin in the hand of the greatest master gives only a little squeak when the place where it is heard is too large. The master may then be mistaken for any bungler. 178. The incomplete as the effective. Just as figures in relief make such a strong impression on the imagination because they seem in the act of emerging from the wall and only stop by some sudden hindrance, so the relief-like, incomplete representation of a thought, or a whole philosophy, is sometimes more effective than its exhaustive amplification. More is left for the investigation of the onlooker. He is incited to the further study of that which stands out before him in such strong light and shade. He is prompted to think out the subject even to overcome the hindrance which hitherto prevented it from emerging clearly. 179. Against the Eccentric When art arrays itself in the most shabby material, it is most easily recognized as art. 180. Collective Intellect A good author possesses not only his own intellect, but also that of his friends. 181. Different Kinds of Mistakes The misfortune of acute and clear authors is that people consider them as shallow and therefore do not devote any effort to them, and the good fortune of obscure writers is that the reader makes an effort to understand them and places the delight in his own zeal to their credit. 182. Relation to Science None of the people have any real interest in a science, who only begin to be enthusiastic about it when they themselves have made discoveries in it. 183. The Key The single thought on which an eminent man sets a great value, arousing the derision and laughter of the masses, is for him a key to hidden treasures. For them, however, it is nothing more than a piece of old iron. 184 untranslatable it is neither the best nor the worst parts of a book which are untranslatable 185 author's paradoxes the so-called paradoxes of an author to which a reader objects are often not in the author's book at all but in the reader's head 186 wit the wittiest authors produce a scarcely noticeable smile 187. Antithesis. Antithesis is the narrow gate through which error is fondness of sneaking to the truth. 188. Thinkers as stylists. Most thinkers write badly because they communicate not only their thoughts, but also the thinking of them. 189. Thoughts in Poetry. The poet conveys his thoughts ceremoniously in the vehicle of rhythm, usually because they are not able to go on foot. 
190. The Sin Against the Reader's Intellect When an author renounces his talent in order merely to put himself on a level with the reader, he commits the only deadly sin which the latter will never forgive, should he notice anything of it. One may say everything that is bad about a person, but in the manner in which it is said one must know how to revive his vanity anew. 191. The Limits of Uprightness Even the most upright author lets fall a word too much when he wishes to round off a period. 192. The Best Author The best author will be he who is ashamed to become one. 193. Draconian Law Against Authors One should regard authors as criminals who only obtain acquittal or mercy in the rarest cases. That would be a remedy for books becoming too rife. End of Fourth Division, Part 1